Good evening, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to the final class on the Book of Lost Tales. This is not only uh, the end of our 10-class series on the Book of Lost Tales Part 2, but the end of our sort of staggered, uh, what was it, 19-part series in total uh, on the first two volumes of the History of Middle-earth. Um, I hope that you guys have enjoyed as much as I have. I feel like Bilbo in his uh, departing speech. Um, I hope that you have all enjoyed these classes as much as I have. Uh, and, uh, you know, this has been our first taste of uh, going through some of the volumes of the History of Middle-earth. Uh, and uh, I know I have absolutely loved going through the Book of Lost Tales with you guys. And uh, I'm looking forward to finishing up, at bringing together the stuff here, which is so confusing uh, to so many people. Uh, but I think we can... I think we can put it together uh, tonight relatively simply, I hope, so uh, we'll uh, have a go with that. First, though, uh, I wanted to make sure that I announce our next class, of course, as I've mentioned several times before, our next class is The Princess Bride, uh, which should be a lot of fun, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, we're going to we're gonna take two weeks off between now and when we start The Princess Bride. Um, my family's traveling, and it's going to make it much simpler if I'm not trying to do class one from a hotel room uh, somewhere. So, um, anyway, so we're gonna, we're, we're gonna start it in two weeks, so that will be the first Wednesday of May, May 6th, so, um, that's the plan, uh, uh, that's the plan for uh, for our next class. Um, get ready. Uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a good book. It's a longish book, so uh, you know, I definitely encourage you to get a start reading it. Uh, and I look forward to begin discussing it with you three weeks from tonight. Um, okay, so let's finish up the Book of Lost Tales Part Two. Now, as I said, I know that the uh the Ariel you know the end of the Ariel story and the Alfwina of England story is you know gets it's easy to get your head really turned around there um and as i mentioned last time i always find the Alfwina stuff much more difficult to follow than the Ariel stuff at the beginning um but as i just said a second ago i don't think it's actually going to be too bad, as long as we kind of keep our eyes on the big picture here. Um, but before we move to Alfwina, um, I want to cover the last bit that we didn't get to at the end of class last week, uh, and that is the way in which... So wh one last thing on the Ariel story before we move on to Alfwina, and that is uh, looking at the way that the Ariel story is transmitted according to the the ideas that, that Tolkien had had there. So... Um, Looking at a couple of, of these references, to again, this is to how the Book of Lost Tales was supposed to be recorded. It's pretty obvious from the beginning that, you know, the frame narrative, uh, you know, from the very beginning of the Book of Lost Tales, it's pretty obvious that the frame narrative is not just designed to be, you know, a sort of an excuse for telling these stories. Since we have a human being from Earth going off to visit the elvish lands and hearing these stories, which are brand new to him, and indeed, so far as we can tell, brand new to the human race, um, it's pretty clear that the what that is setting up is the fact that this is how these stories came down and came to be told among us. You are reading the book that you are holding in your hand because it is based upon a manuscript that was passed down, and of course, uh, especially being familiar 
as uh, so many of us are, with Tolkien's tendencies to add those kinds of stories in, as we see uh, in even to some extent in The Hobbit, but more fully in The Lord of the Rings, um, you know, of course, we, we should be expecting that. So here are a couple versions that we can see of how he had been thinking of how that was going to work. It's one of the unfinished questions, right, about the end of the story. Okay, so it's not just a question of how does Ariel's story personally end, but how do these stories come down to us? How does this book that we're reading ever get uh, written? Um, so here's, here's one version. A great battle between men at the heath of the sky roof, now the withered heath, about a league from Tavrabel. This is after the faring forth now, that the second trip back. The elves and the children flee over the Gruyere and the Afros. Even now do they approach, and our great tale comes to its ending. The book found in the ruins of the House of a Hundred Chimneys. So remember the faring forth uh, in the aerial version, like, you know, the, 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 there's, the, there's the march out from Kor, and then there's the faring forth at the end to go get the lost kindred, and it's supposed to be, it's the prophetic one about everything is going to be, you know, reconciled and restored, and everything's going to be awesome unless it isn't, and of course it turns out not to be, uh, and everything ends up as a disaster. Uh, I love this little glimpse, that little direct quotation, even now do they approach, and our great tale comes to its ending. Um, that presumably, I mean, I, my understanding of what's going on there from the context is that that's supposed to be the last line of the book. So what we have here in this conception is not, in fact... Um, you know the basically a human transmission, but essentially you know a from the elvish perspective now Ariel's connected with them right he's drunk limpe and he's he's come back with them um but uh but this idea of that the book of lost tales was not indeed going to be a tradition handed down but it was going to be a discovered manuscript right that in the ruins of the house of a hundred chimneys someday at some point later on somebody was going to uncover this book. Uh, which ends with, even now do they approach, and our great tale comes to its ending. Um, talk about ending uh, on a <laughs> on a down note. Um, and of course, you'll get the reference that I made in my subtitle. It reminds me a lot of the Book of Mazarbul. Uh, uh, you know, we cannot get out. Um, it has that kind of a sense, not quite the same sort of claustrophobic sense of the Book of Mazarbul of being, you know, closed into the room and having no escape. But it's a little bit like that, right? So this is one concept, and to me this sort of speaks as clearly as anything else about his sense of the, you know, his his vision for the tragedy of the ending, you know, that was going to be connected with the ending, and how that tragedy was going to be transmitted to us, so that we read those words with a sense of loss at the very end, right? And that's how we, we, we go from the book, with that sense of loss, right? Um, but um, then we get uh, a different version. He so he comes back later on and decides. So that that last one was fragment five. So that's far, fairly early on uh, in his thinking. Later on, at least Christopher believes it's later. Uh, he comes back and he writes an epilogue. Right, that is he he writes that first person epilogue from Ariel's point of view. So we're not going to have it just discovered like that anymore. We're going to have Ariel actually finish the book with a more full epilogue, telling the whole story. Uh, so this is from that epilogue. There, hark, O oh my brothers, they shall say the little trumpets blow. We hear a sound of instruments unimagined, small, like strands of wind, like mist.
mystic half-transparencies. Gilfanon, lord of Taverbell, rides out tonight amid his folk, and hunts the elfin deer beneath the paling sky. A music of forgotten feet, a gleam of leaves, a sudden bending of the grass, and wistful voices murmuring on the bridge, and they are gone. But behold, Taverbell shall not know its name, and all the land be changed, and even these wor written words of mine belike will all be lost, and so I lay down the pen, and so of the fairies cease to tell. This so again we get a second ending, right? This one is a pretty you know pretty decisive ending. Again, this is not an ending that just trails off, right? This is a this is a real ending. So I lay down the pen, right? Um, Ariel writing his last sentence. Um, that phrase, "Behold, Tavrabel shall not know its name." Um, I think that is such a striking turn of phrase right there. And what's more, I think that that's going to be really relevant to our discussions for later on. Keep that phrase in mind. Tavrabel shall not know its name. Uh, and all the land shall be, and all the land be changed, and even these written words of mine belike will all be lost. That's why it's called the Book of Lost Tales, right? Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be lost and presumably rediscovered at some future point. Um, and it ends with this description of the fading elves, right? And their presence, but they're fading, right? They're, they're, they're here, um, but they're, you know, the, the, sound, there's, the sound of instruments is unimagined small. Um, and uh, uh, we've got the, you know, the, 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 the elfin deer and uh, the, the wistful voices murmuring on the bridge. Um, these are the last images, the last concepts that we get from uh, uh, from the the story of the Eldar, right? Going down all the way through everything we've read in the Book of Lost Tales, right? Uh, through uh, through you know the story of Fanor and the story of Tinuviel and Baron and the story of Turin and Turambar, and it all comes down to a music of forgotten feet, a gleam of leaves, a sudden bending of the grass, and wistful voices murmuring on the bridge, and they are gone. I'm going to stop writing now, right? Um, I shall of the fairies cease to tell. Note though that there is. Well, I won't say a note of hope. Um, that seems a little strong. But uh, a a loophole through which hope could conceivably enter. Um, that is, he's going to cease to tell of the fairies. It doesn't mean the fairies are gone, right? The, the finality of the previous ending seemed even greater, right? I mean, that was, you know, that, that you know, it, even now do they approach and our great tale comes to its ending, Right. We're all gonna die is what that seems to say, right? Um, so you read that and you know you're like, whoa, okay, you know, there's there's no trace of those people left anymore, right? Um, here, he's not gonna tell anymore of the, but there might be more to be told, right? And perhaps others could tell other stories or could add other stories, and that seems to me to be the implication, to be sort of the force of that final description. Why we get that description of Gilfan and Lord of Tavrabel riding out amid his folk, um, because you know, have you perhaps heard a similar thing? Have you ever been out, you know, among the elms at night and under the moon and heard a music of forgotten feet? You know, seen the gleam of leaves, the sudden bending of the grass. Uh, have you experienced this too, perhaps, and not known what you perceived? Um, anyway, that that opening seems to me at least kind of implied there, whereas it wasn't 
implied before where it seemed like we were just talking about the complete destruction of everything. Um, yeah, Kate Neville points out uh, very aptly, I think, she says, it's very interesting that the emotion in, of this passage is essentially given to Sam's musing about the elves passing out of Middle-earth in the Fellowship of the Ring. The story has changed, but not the themes entirely. Absolutely, Kate. And I think that we can see that even more strongly um, as we move into the Alfwina stuff, as we'll come back and talk about. Um, and that's, of course, the you'll have seen the reference there that I'm making in my title for tonight's class, if you believe the old tales. Um, you remember who said that? Whom am I quoting in the title today? A little Tolkien trivia? Okay, it's a little obscure to remember the precise line. Uh, Ted Sandyman, that's who said it. Yep, yep, Ted Sandyman. Not not old Sandyman. So this is the, the second Gamgee-Sandyman debate. Not the first one between the gaffer and, and old uh, Sandyman. Um, but uh, Ted and Sam... Yeah, yeah. Um, I, we'll, as I say, we'll uh, come back to that uh, in a little bit. Um, we do get, of course, another one other version of how the Lost Tale survived, uh, and that is uh, sort of intriguingly, under the circumstances, the idea that Ariel's son come, goes on to edit them and produce them <laughs> for later generations. The Golden Book of Heerenda, being the book of the tales of Tavrabel, Heerenda of Haywoodu, that is, of, of Haywood, um, where Tolkien lived. This book have I written, using those writings that my father Wafra, whom the gnomes named after the regions of his home Angol, did make in his sojourn in the Holy Isle in the days of the elves, and much else have I added to those things which his eyes saw not afterward, yet are such things not yet to tell. For no, here then the golden book was compiled from Ariel. This is Christopher now. It cuts off there. Here then the golden book was compiled from Ariel's writings by his son Heerenda. In contrast to five, the first one I quoted, um, where it was compiled by someone unnamed, and in contrast to the epilogue, this the last passage we looked at, where Ariel himself concluded and sealed the book. As I have said earlier, Angol refers to the ancient homeland of the English before their migration across the North Sea. Um, and then we get a reference to the etymology there. Okay, so um, so we can see this sort of final version where he's kind of keeping it in the family, the passing it down through his son. Um, you know, again, Kate, we, we, we can still see a Lord of the Rings kind of echo there. Or again, or, or we could say perhaps again Sam Gamgee becomes heir to this, right? This idea of, you know, the book being passed on and it's being kept... Um, you know, by the next generation to, to, to uh, you know, sort of remember it and uh, pass it along. Um, exactly, Nancy uh, Fosberg was also thinking of the Red Book of Westmarch. Um, exactly, exactly. Um, so, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of... And, and, of course, keep in mind as well, Herenda, the son of Ariel was the son of his was the half elvish son of Ariel by the elvish wife that he takes in Tolarisea. Um so Herenda himself becomes in another sense the logical inheritor of uh, uh of of his 
father's legacy, right? Because he himself, just as his father Ariel is passing down these these stories to sort of serve as a bridge between the world of the Eldar, which has gone and is fading, and the world of men, so Herenda himself is that bridge, right? Um, James asks, is Herenda intended to sound like Eirendo? Herenda is taken from an Anglo-Saxon poem. Well, both of them are Anglo-Saxon words, so in part, James, that's probably where some of the similarity comes from. Um, Herenda, both of them are real names um, taken from Anglo-Saxon poetry. Uh, so uh, Tolkien made, neither, made up neither one of those names. Um, same with Deor, uh, when we'll get to Deor uh, later on. Um... Yeah, yeah, Carita, I agree. Uh, you know, Carita's saying, of course, you know, it's it's oversimplistic to just kind of equate, you know, Tolkien to Ariel and Heron to Christopher. But it is kind of cool that we have someone writing about fairies and his son being the editor. It is a kind of fun real world echo. I agree, and I mean, though, of course, obviously, Carita, right at this point, maybe by the even by the time you get to the end of the Lord of the Rings, maybe he's thinking of Christopher as his as his, you know, sort of literary heir by that time already. But certainly not now, right? Not in 1920. You know, Tolkien's not even 30 years old yet. I don't think he's thinking about, like, and I shall hand it off to my son Christopher, who shall one day publish it uh, in a posthumous volume. Um, So to that extent, the real world echo is kind of, uh, well, it's, I won't call it quite serendipitous either. That doesn't seem quite right either. But, uh, um, but Karita, it just makes it more fun, right? Um, okay. Uh, one last, uh, thing that I want to, that I want to emphasize, because this is a really crucial, th- you know, this is a, as we leave the Ariel story behind and move on to the Alfwina story, um, cause this is a really, really crucial thing. Again, you will hear all the time people talking about, you know, people referring to Tolkien's famous declaration of his desire to write, to make a mythology for England. And that's something that, which is easy to misunderstand. And I've met a lot of people who do misunderstand what exactly Tolkien meant, what he was referring to, um, uh, with the, with, 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 by saying that he wanted to, he wanted to write a mythology for England. Um, so just uh, you know, note here again. This is the last kind of comment on the the Lost Tales the collection that Ariel has 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 written. Thus it is that through Ariel and his sons, the Engla, i.e. the English, have the true tradition of the fairies, of whom the Iras and the Waelas, the Irish and the Welsh, tell garbled things. Right, um, and here he is appealing directly to the. Um, uh, to the, 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 the sore spot that he felt. He described how he always felt that his own native country, England, um, was mythologically poor. It didn't have a native mythology. It had Celtic stuff, but he didn't consider Celtic stuff his native mythology, right? That's the Irish and Welsh stuff. Um, but what about English? There's no English stuff survived. Um, and, uh, you know, we just have some, like, Celtic stuff, and then it gets overtaken by French stuff, and, you know, we get some Norse things coming in, but where's the English stuff? Where's the English mythology? And so, in the Book of Lost Tales, we have how these, how the story of the elves come among the English, and how the English 
came through the Book of Lost Tales to retain the accurate, the most accurate, um, the, you know, the most true tradition of the fairies. And think about this in connection with all the observations that we've made over the last couple months about all of those, that sort of explanatory mythology, especially what we were looking at last week with how the island of England itself came to, to be in place, right? And the significance of how it used to be Tol Arisea. Um, how when Tol Arisea, you know, during the Faring Forth, when Tol Arisea is dragged over to Middle-earth, that becomes England. So the, the, you know, the, the whole mythic history of English itself and its connection with the lost West and with, uh, you know, the land of Valinor and with the Eldar. Um, all these things are explained in the Book of Lost Tales and the magic of the island of England is explained. It's clear that this stuff, all these things we've been talking about here, this is what Tolkien meant when he talked about a mythology for England. Um, and he says later on that he, um, that yeah, Michael's asking, is this a, a bit of rivalry between the English and the Irish and Welsh? Is Tolkien's bias showing? Yes, but quite boldly, I think. Absolutely. Um, not, not in the sense necessarily that he's saying, like, you know, the English are totally better than the Irish and Welsh. It's not that exactly. The problem is that, um, what he's reacting to here, I believe, is the fact that the only thing old, the only thing native to the British Isles, the only mythology native to the British Isles was Celtic mythology. And again, Tolkien didn't accept Celtic mythology as native English. It's, uh, the Irish, it's Irish and Welsh, and that's fine. So when he, when he does do this little invidious comparison, right, the English have the true mythology, and the Irish and Welsh's mythology is only garbled, there is a bit of, like, wish fulfillment there, right? Because that is the reverse of the actual historical situation, where the Irish and Welsh have their, you know, this, this, this native, you know, uh, sort of enduring Celtic mythology, and the English have nothing other than garbled things. Um, so in that sense, yes. But again, I don't think this is like an English supremacist thing so much as it is um, his sort of assertion of that, of that uh, mythological identity that he's trying to establish through the vehicle of the Lost Tales here. Um, let's see, okay. Uh, oh, yeah, Michael was asking, um, had he met uh, his wife yet? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, is Tenuviel a reference to her? Yes, absolutely. So, um, the the reference to, to, to you know, that, that first meeting of Baron and Tenuviel um, when she is dancing in the woods and he is enthralled by her, you know, not enthralled, that's a negative word, uh, enchanted by her. Um, that that goes way back, you know, Tolkien uh, alludes uh, on several occasions to the, the biographical event uh, where that happened one day out, you know, on a, on a walk in the woods uh, uh, with Edith. So yes, yes, that, that, that stuff predates the Tenuvial stuff that's already there. Um, yeah, cool. Um, yeah, so Nancy, yes, the, the, you're right to emphasize that it's not just that the English retain the true tradition of the fairies, but that in a sense they are, they are what, Nancy says the English are half-elven, 
Well, not exactly. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, right? I mean, not all the English are half-elven. Heorenda comes back, apparently, and he's half-elvish, and so some strain of the elvish uh, blood remains there. But I think it's more important to say that England is half-elvish, right? Because it was the elvish isle. It was, the, you know, it's, it, it is the elvish, it is the displaced elvish homeland, right? Um... So, so yeah, so like England, England is half elvish. Uh, I think is sort of the uh, the 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 more important thing there. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay, good. Um, excellent. Okay, so let's see. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, Jana, I know that the, the Welsh wouldn't appreciate this. Uh, I, I totally, I totally get that. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, good. Um, all right, let's move on to Alfwina, and we're, we're gonna we're not gonna stop talking about this. We're gonna come back to this uh, again, um, but I wanna I wanna look at the shift. So after he's finished with the lost, t- well, okay. <laughs> The Lost Tales aren't finished, but they're finished with as far as Tolkien is concerned, right? I'm quoting Leaf by Niggle, uh, if you don't recognize it. Um, so he stopped writing the Book of Lost Tales, um, but he's not finished it. But before he does go back to finish it, if ever he had been thinking about going back to finish it, or if he didn't just decide not to finish it, in any case, he came up with a second uh, frame, a, 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 cha- a change of frame. And can I just say, this is exactly... If Christopher Tolkien is right, that the long narrative of Alfwina of England that we get, you know, that, that Christopher puts in at the end of this chapter, if that long narrative of Alfwina's voyage um, is indeed meant to be the beginning of chapter one of the newly revised Book of Lost Tales... I think that this is a... It makes entire sense to me that that would happen, and what that suggests to me was that he was not indeed abandoning yet the Book of Lost Tales. Um, This is the kind of thing that Tolkien does a lot in his process. So, okay, so he, he, he starts writing the Book of Lost Tales, and he gets pretty far through them, right? I mean, there's a lot of narrative written here. Right? Even if you take out Christopher's commentary, the Book of Lost Tales that Tolkien wrote would make a pretty thick book, right? So he's 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 gotten a lot, but then but he hasn't finished it, right? And he's got all these outlines and projections, and here's where we're gonna go, and okay, okay, but he doesn't. But for whatever reason, he leaves it aside, right? Um, something else happens in his life, and he he sets he, he sets it aside. A little bit of time goes by, and he comes back, and this is like the tragic story of why Tolkien left so much of his work unfinished. He comes back and says, oh, um, I could, I have two options. I could either pick up where I left off and finish it, or I could go back and reconceive the whole thing from the beginning and start rewriting the whole thing from scratch. Yes, that's what I'm going to do. That's almost always what Tolkien chose to do, uh, was go back and start the whole thing again. And that seems to be what happened, right? So he comes back and he decides, no, 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 I'm ditching Ariel. I'm going to change it to Alfwina. Uh, and and he thinks of this whole uh, you know long story for Alfwina, uh, this long setup. And remember, we, we know nothing about Ariel. I mean... 
we go back to the Cottage of Osprey, back to chapter one of volume one of the Book of Lost Tales. We're told later on some information about Ariel's life, but when we meet him, the narrative begins with him on Tol Arisea, right? He's wandering around Tol Arisea and comes to the Cottage of Osprey. That's how the stories begin. Uh, instead, we're going to get this whole long preamble of the story of Alfwina and his long journey and his meeting with Olmo and all these other things, and then he's going to he dives into the ocean at the end and he appears to be lost. But I guess he's going to, you know, wash up on the beach or something at Tolarisea, and thence when he's going to hear the stories, and now we're off and running. But of course, as so often happens, you know, he, he, he writes this much, some time passes, he goes back and starts again, writes this much, stops, and that's it, right? That's something that you can see uh, in several of his, of his, other, um, of his other manuscripts. Um, so, uh, um... Yeah, Nancy says, should we be sad he didn't finish more works, or should we be happy that he ever finished The Lord of the Rings? Um, uh, the latter. We should be happy that he finished The Lord of the Rings. Um, because the more you read of the rest of Tolkien's writings, the more miraculous that seems. Um, and I have to say, I, I, uh, I give the Inklings props for this. And Christopher, too. Um, but... Uh, that is, I think, the fact that he had other people who were um, kind of pressuring him to carry on and not just go back and fiddle with the beginning again. Um, that's, uh, uh, that's, I think, it's the only difference that I can see between that and so many of the other things uh, that he did not uh, abandon. Um, but anyway, okay. Or, no, the stuff that he did abandon is what I meant. All right, um, so so again, what we've a little bit of time has passed, and he's come back, and he's reconsidered. What I want to do, it's really easy to get lost in all the details and get and get get confused by names and things like that. Um, I think we can keep it relatively simple, and it's it's comparatively straightforward. And in fact, I think that in many ways, the change in plot between the Ariel story and the Alfwina story. I think is actually even less than Christopher Tolkien makes it, in a sense. Well, let me show you what I mean. So, okay, let's, let's start at the beginning here. So this is Christopher Tolkien's overview <clears throat> of the shift. Alfwina, then... Oh, and by the way, does Christopher Tolkien ever actually come out and say that the name Alfwina means elf friend in Anglo-Saxon? I couldn't remember if he actually did. I, I couldn't find it, but maybe I was overlooking it. Anyway, just in case... You were wondering, Alfwina does mean elf friend uh, in Anglo-Saxon. Um, okay, I figured he must say it, Yana, but I couldn't. I, I couldn't find it when I was looking for it. Anyway, Alfwina then is associated with a new conception subsequent to the writing of the Lost Tales. The Mariner is Alfwina, not Ariel. <clears throat> in the second scheme for the tales, which I have called an unrealized project for the revision of the whole work, the essential difference may be made clear now before citing the difficult evidence. Tall Arisea is now in no way identified with England. I certainly agree with Christopher that is by far the overwhelmingly most significant change between the Ariel story and the Alfwina story. Tall Arisea is now not England anymore. And the story of the drawing back of the lonely island across the sea has been abandoned. Uh, which is kind of a shame, because I like hooking whales up to islands and hauling them around. Uh, England is indeed still at the heart of this later conception, and is named Luthany. Now, 
And of course, he's called, you know, Alpha, they call Alphawina Luthien because he's the dude from Luthany, and Luthany means friendship, and Luthien means friend, except sometimes when he uses the words backwards or whatever. Don't worry about it. Um, and yes, he's called Luthien, and that's Tinuviel's name later on, and that's kind of mind blowing. My advice is. Um, we just have to kind of agree to get over it, right? Just just accept it. England is Luthany. Luthany is England, right? And Luthien has nothing to do with Tenuviel, but it's just the name of a dude who comes from Luthany. No problem, right? Okay. The Mariner, Alfwina, is an Englishman sailing westward from the coast of Britain, and his role is diminished. Okay. For whereas in the writings studied thus far, he comes to Tol Arisea before the denouement and disaster of the Faring Forth, and either he himself or his descendants witness the devastation of Tol Arisea by the invasion of men and their evil allies. In one line of development, he was even to be responsible for it, and we saw the one where Ariel was to blame for everything. In the later narrative outlines, he does not arrive until all the grievous history is done. His part is only to learn and to record. Now, this is where I, I, I disagree with Christopher, not in detail. I'm not saying he's wrong about the manuscripts or anything like that. Um, but I, I think that he's... A, it, it, this sounds to me like a slight exaggeration of the significance of the difference between these two stories. Um, both of them arrive at Tol Arisea at the same period of time. That is, they both arrive at Tol Arisea after the elves have marched out from Kor to go to Middle-earth, right, and bind Melko, and then retreat back again. Right, that's happened already. Then the elves retreat back, and there's going to be there's there's the big faring forth, right? The big prophetic end of the world like faring forth that's going to be happening later on. Um, and Ariel, both Ariel and Alfwina, come to tow Arisea between those two things. The real difference is not that Alfwina um, is. Uh, you know, it's not that he arrives later in the context of Elvish history, exactly. He arrives at the same... I mean, it's later in, in Earth history. Um, Ariel very much predates um, Alfwina. Um, Ariel's sons are Hengist and Horsa, right, who are, like, leading the Anglo-Saxon invasion of England, whereas Alfwina is, you know, in the later Anglo-Saxon period. So, Alfwina, uh, several centuries in, in, in human chronology come between Ariel and Alfwina. But the difference in the Elvish history does not seem to me to be profound. What is profound is that in the Ariel story, we get the end, Right, Ariel is going to be involved in the end, and the concept, Tolkien's concept of the Book of Lost Tales, is that he wanted the Book of Lost Tales to incorporate, or, or to encapsulate also, that final ending. Right, so it, we will see the cataclysm of the elves, right, the faring for the disastrous faring forth, and how it's, uh, you know, the men are going to screw it up, and everything's going to go bad, um, and it's after that that we're going to get the tales, right. Whereas in the Alfwina concept, he seems, as far as we can tell, n though it's looked quite uncertain, right, because he didn't get anywhere even vaguely near that in the second reworking, but it seems like he's just not going to even go there, right? The elves 
in the Book of Lust are going to be waiting. The faring forth, the big final faring forth, is in, is is still in the distant future, right? It's still in prophecy stage. Um, who knows? It hasn't happened yet, right? So the chronology has shifted, and so therefore where the elves are in their plot line has shifted, but their plot line itself isn't, I think, fundamentally different. Um, so that's the part where I don't I don't necessarily agree with the way that he characterizes the difference between Ariel and Alfwina there. I think they're actually more similar than he's letting on, or not letting on, as if he's trying to hide it. Um, then he characterizes it there. But I do think, I agree with his italicized bit here, Tol Arisea is now in no way identified with England. Um, that I agree with, and I think is sure is clearly a very important thing. Let's look at some of the new outlines of how the Alfwina story um, was going to go. Alfwina of England dwelt in the southwest. He was of the kin of Ing, king of Luthany. His father and mother were slain by the sea pirates, that is, the Vikings, and he was made captive. He had always loved the fairies. His father had told him many things of the tradition of Ing. He escapes. He beats about the northern and western waters. He meets the ancient mariner, and seeks for Tol Erisea, Seo Onwemida Yig, whether, whither most of the unfaded elves have retired from the noise, war, and clamor of men. The elves greet him, and the more so when they learn of him, uh, learn of him who he is. They call him Luthien, the man of Luthany. He finds his own tongue, the ancient English tongue, is spoken in the isle. Okay. Um... What do we notice here? Um, what do we notice? What's important here? Differences between Alfwina's story as we get it here and the Ariel story that we saw before? What strikes you as particularly important here uh, in the in the difference uh, in differences between these two accounts? Kate says, this seems such a retelling of both Tuor and Eärendil. I absolutely agree, Kate, and I'm going to come back to that later on. I think that that, my sense of that only grows as we go through the Alfwina section of this chapter. Um, It really does begin to sound like a Tuor, Eärendil revisiting. Yeah. Um, Okay, Kate points out that Alfwina is set in a more historical England. Yes, yes. Now, why did Ariel go to tell Arisaia? Do you remember? Way back in the distant past, we were talking about the Kajavas play. Okay, it's a trick question. We have no idea how he gets there. Or rather, all we are told is that he's a wonder. Right? He's a seafarer. He's, he's a son of Arendel, which means he's got wanderlust. He's a wanderer. Right, he he <laughs> to get away from Ted Sandy, man. Kate says, um, he's he's born under the beam of Arendel, which means he has a longing for the sea and is a great traveler. Right, so Arendel's just like on tour. Right, he's a tourist in Tolerasea and finds himself at the cottage of Vosplay. Now, you know, calling Ariel a tourist might seem a little harsh, um, but. That's all we're really told. We get more of that story fleshed out later. Remember the stuff we were looking at last time from the, you know, the way that he is 
you know, he loses his family, you know, in the Song of Ariel, in that poem we were looking at last time, about how he loses his family and is full of the longing for the sea and stuff. And so we, we do get some more things built in kind of later on. Um, but, uh, but it's not focused. He's not setting out to find Tolerasea. Never even heard of Tolerasea. Um, he wants to travel, he's longing for the sea, but anyway, when he finds, no one's more surprised than he is when he finds Tol Arisea. Alfwina sets out to find Tol Arisea. He seeks for Tol Arisea, whither most of the unfated elves have retired. Why? Because he's heard from his father in the traditions of Ing, many of the story. he loves the fairies. Right, he from his youth has been hearing stories of 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 the fairies, longs to see them and to find them, has heard of their ancient homeland of Tall Erisea, and is seeking to go there and to find it because he seeks to find the unfaded elves who have retired from the noise, war, and clamor of men. That is a huge difference between Ariel and Elfwina, right? Not. And, and notice the first one is more like, is more of a fairy tale opening, right? Where a human wanderer, a human traveler, finds himself through no intention of his own and quite to his own surprise in fairy, right? This is how most fairy tales happen, as Tolkien himself describes in On Fairy Stories. That is not the case with Alfwina. Alfwina has heard of the fairies and is seeking them out. The desire for the things of fairy. Is uh, is is what brings him to go there, and his familiarity with it from where he lives in England already, England's existing connection with the elves and familiarity with it is a huge part of his story from the beginning. Um. Uh, Carita says, uh, "Is there a bit of wishful?" fulfillment there, you know, the uh, loving fairies and getting to meet them bit. You know, in a sense, possibly, but you know, Karita, what I think is even cooler is this idea that that's kind of the root of where this English mythology comes from, you know, is from that desire to find the fairies, that, you know, that is it's, in the second version it's almost like, in the first version the the true traditions of the fairies which come to be handed down among the English kind of happens, and not by accident exactly, but sort of serendipitously, right? Nobody really plans it. Um, whereas here, it's not that Alfwina is setting out to establish a mythology for England himself, but uh, uh, England retains the true tradition of the fairies because they wanted it, right? <laughs> because Alfwina sought it. Um, and I think that's... Uh, I think that's that's pretty cool. And notice, notice again, as I said, the connection, the pre-existing connection between England and the elves. The other like bombshell that gets dropped in this projection, nobody's even commented on it yet. When he gets to Tal Arisea, what does he find? It's not just that he's heard stories about the elves throughout his childhood. What else does he find? There in the last paragraph. 
Yeah, he gets to tell Arisaia, and darn it if they don't all speak Anglo-Saxon, right? And here's the elves all speaking, all speaking Anglo-Saxon among themselves, right? How marvelous, right? Talk about, talk about, uh, talk about wish fulfillment, uh, Karina, right? Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, he goes, uh, the elves speak Anglo-Saxon among themselves because, again, they have this knowledge and connection of the English, uh, as we'll look at more later. Okay, so here's, uh, Here's, here's more. Here's the second projection. Alfwina of Englaland, um, added later, driven by the Normans, by which he means the Vikings. You're not talking about the Norman invasion necessarily yet. Um, the Vikings are also the, the, the Normans, the Northmans, the Forod Wife, right? As they're called later on in the, uh, in, in, in the long narrative. Uh, arrives until Erisea, whither most of the fading elves have withdrawn from the world, and there fade now no more. Description of the harbor of the southern shore. The fairies greet him well, hearing he is from England. He is surprised to hear them speak the speech of Alfred of Wessex, though to one another they spoke a sweet and unknown tongue. The elves name him Luthien, for he has come from Luthany, as they call it, friend and friendship. Eldaros or Alfham. Elfholm. Elvenholm. He is sped to Ross, their capital. There he finds the cottage of lost play, and Lindo and Vire. He tells who he is and whence, and why he has long sought for the isle, by reasons of traditions in the kin of Ing, and he begs the elves to come back to Englaland. Here begins as an explanation of why they cannot, the series of stories called the Book of Lost Tales. Okay, so notice what we extra things we learn here, right? Why did the elves go to Tol Erisea? Why are the elves on Tol Erisea? They withdrew to Tol Erisea from England because they wanted to stop fading, right? Get, getting the, you know, the fading elves have withdrawn and their fade now no more, right? Because they were fading, they have, re- they have retired to Tol Erisea and in Tol Erisea they cease to fade. Whereas, presumably, they would have carried on fading had they remained in England. So, the elves themselves have, have lost England, right? They've left it on purpose, um, but, um, but they've, they've, they've lost it, right? Um, and, and I love this. The Book of Lost Tales itself, this book that we're about to read, presumably, if we're getting this stuff, is an explanation, ultimately, of why the elves can't come back to England. Right? Um, Alfwina says, come back, please, and they're like, well, we can't. It's a long story, but we can't. Right? Uh, We'll tell you the story. That is sort of the overall purpose. That's the overall goal, conclusion, destination of the Book of Lost Tales story. Um, uh, so, and th- that to me is a really fascinating development there. Um, look at the, look at the synopsis. So this is Christopher's, uh, you know, sort of parallel synopsis of the Ariel story and the Alfwina story. And you'll notice the similarities. There's actually not really that much change. 
Um, I mean, yeah, Alfwina is different, has a different relationship with human history than Ariel, as we mentioned. But if you look at the overall structure of the story, it's not a lot different. Both of them have, you know, the March of the Elves from Core to the Great Lands to rescue the Noldoi and bind Melko and everything. Um, afterwards, there's a war with men in the Great Lands that happens with both. Um, then, uh, then we have the retreats. Now, this is so. This is the place where we get where it's different, right? Remember, Ariel. Arrow, the elves go back to Tall Arisea, which is way across the sea. Uh, then Ariel comes and joins them substantially later. And then at the Faring Forth, Tall Arisea is dragged over towards the Great Lands and rooted down next to the Great Lands where the English Channel in between becomes England. Right? In the Alfwina story, the elves also retreat after they march out. Right? They retreat, but they retreat to England, which is already there. Right to the island of England. Uh, uh, excuse me, to Luthany. Right, Luthany, which is ruled by Ingwe. So there's a there's, a, there's a human named Ingwe who rules Luthany, and he hangs out with the elves. He likes the elves. So the elves have retreated. They come back to Luthany. They hang out with Ingwe. Ingwe likes them. They like him. Right, and this is where the tradition of the elves began among the humans. Right, we don't need the Book of Lost Tales to get some stories among. The humans, remember, that's where Elf, Alfwina's story starts, is with having grown up with all of these stories of the elves. Um, so they go back to England. From there, they go back to Tol Arisea, and Alfwina goes in pursuit of them. Um, what I think... Now, I mean, yes, you can make a big deal about the fact that we don't have the shift of the island, right? That is, we don't have any longer that... That element in the story which Christopher Tolkien characterized, it wasn't in the context of talking about the whale, it was in the context of talking about the giant pine tree that Melko ran up, um, but uh, w- w- which he called a primitive mythology. Um, you know, this idea that the, um, of, of this sort of explanatory myth, um, uh, you know, which would be deemed sort of outlandish by modern... Um, uh, from a modern um, standpoint. Um, so you can make a big deal about the fact that we're no longer hitching whales up to any islands um, in the second version of the story. I think the most important thing here, I think, you know, when we look at these two, and I ask myself, what is the fundamental difference in these two stories? What is the biggest difference? How are these... T- what makes these different stories, in essence? And my answer is... The direction, the orientation of things. That is, the motion is opposite. The aerial story, the elves are moving eastward. Not just in the marching forth, that happens both times. Um, but in that returning, the dragging back of Tol Arisea, the island of the elves is brought into our world. And then we humans take it over and pretty much wreck it, right? There's no congenial relationship there. We come in, the elves fade. Uh, we're kind of, some of us are kind of a little bit aware of them, but as we wax dense and denser and grosser all the time, you know, we cease to even notice that they were here and we have taken, and they are fading and they are lost. They don't even have anywhere to go, right? Um, so they, they, they linger, but they fade and fade. Um, whereas the Alfwina story is emphatically 
Western, right? Western in its orientation. We've got that initial march back to the east, and after that, everything is west, right? The elves go back to England, but then from there, they go further back to Toa Erisea. But having been there first and established that friendly friendly relationship with with Ingwe and the kingdom of men there in Luthany in the land of friendship, they still now the men still long for the elves and seek and you know Alfwina as their kind of representative seeks and goes out west himself to find the elves. The elves aren't being drawn into our world, they are drawing us out of our world, and that is the voyage, that is the, traje- that is the trajectory of Alfwina, and that I think is the most crucial distinction between these two stories. Um, now, we only get one glimpse of what the end might look like for Alfwina, or where, or how his story ends. We get almost all of Alfwina's story that we know is like pre-Book of Lost Tales, right? What leads up to it. And again, that in itself is a really big deal. Ariel, again, he's this he's a tourist whose life is quite transformed by this one remarkable, you know, he, the, here's, 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 okay, he wasn't on a three-hour tour, but he was on just a, minding his own business. One, okay, he wasn't minding his own business. But anyway, he was wandering around thinking nothing of it until all of a sudden his life is transformed by his contact with the Eldar, and he wants to drink Limpan, he wants to stay, and then, you know, he is involved with the Faring Forth and everything else. Ariel's story sort of begins when he shows up at the Cottage of Lost Play. Alf Winnis' story ends at the Cottage of Lost Play, right? Um, His whole story is about his longing and desire, and I want to go find the elves, and I'm going to work, and it's going to take me a long time, and it's going to be hard to achieve my goal of getting to Tol Erisea. But then when he does, it's just a matter of... uh, uh, it's just a matter of telling, you know, hearing stories, ultimately, which are just to, to explain why, no, we can't go back with you. But we do get the one glimpse of the later uh, part of Alfwina's career, how Alfwina drank of Limpe, but thirsted for his home and went back to Luthany, and thirsted then unquenchably for the elves, and went back to Tavrabel the Old, and dwelt in the House of the Hundred Chimneys, where grows still the child of the child of the Pine of Belauren, and wrote the Golden Book. Okay, where did the Book of Lost Tales come from? Well, Notice we get still, as with Ariel's story, we get Alfwina's desire to drink Limpe. This seems like a somewhat less impulsive decision on Alfwina's part. That is, again, when Ariel, you know, he goes to the Cottage of Osplay and he's like, I love it here. And then he hears more stories and he's like, no, 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 I really love it here. In fact, I'd quite like to stay because this island is awesome, right? And so, you know, he goes to Merrily Tarinki and is like, hey, um... Uh, can I have Limpe? Because I'm I'm good. You know, I, I, I love it here, and Limpe sounds nice and, and everything. And she's like, well, if you drink Limpe, then you will be joined to us, and you can never leave again. And he's like, mm, okay, I'm good. That sounds good with me, right? And then, of course, we hear about how he's consumed by his, you know, he's consumed by his, for his desire for Limpe, and then he gets it, and then he's like, now I'm consumed with my desire for home, just as Meryl uh, tried to warn him of. And um, so um, he... Um, we get this division and, and his coming back, and this is what leads him to cause single-handedly the, the wrecking of the Faring Forth uh, in that one horrible version of the end of his story. With Alfwina, 
there's more context, right? I mean, that he would want to drink Limpe when he gets to Tol Arise is like a no-brainer, right? This is the dude who's been longing to find the Eldar his entire life, right? He's heard their stories and he wants to go. And so he finally gets there and he has labored, he has worked his butt off to get to Tol Arise, and he finally gets to Tol Arise and he's like, I'm good, I'm staying, give me some Limpe, right? Makes perfect sense. Not that he'd ask for it like that, of course. Doubtless he'd be exquisitely polite. But you, but you see the point, right? I mean, again, it seems like the natural consummation of the whole life of Alfwina rather than the point of the transformation of the life of Ariel, right? Okay. So, um, but again, Tolkien is still holding on to this idea that after the drinking of Limpe, we still have that thirsting for home, right? That even Alfwina, Mr. I-just-want-to-go-to-Toerasea and find the elves, still has the desire for home, too. Still can't quite leave England entirely behind. He wants to go back to Luthany, and in fact does go back to Luthany. It's not said in this very, very brief outline, it's not said explicitly that that is transgressive. Remember, Ariel was told, if you have Limpe, you you can only have Limpe on condition, uh, on the condition that you agree that you're never going to go back, you have to know it's never going to happen, and so when he does anyway, he's breaking the law. Right, I mean, he's he's transgressing when he goes back. It's not made explicit that Alfwina can't go home after he drinks Limpe, and that his there that therefore his going back to Luthany is transgressive. Um, but um, but it seems uh, it seems probable anyway. I would say. But then, of course, when he gets back to Luthany, he thirsts unquenchably for the elves. So, um, Alfwin, in the end, Alfwina is just desired by unquenchable thirsts, and there's nothing he can do about it. Um, and he goes back to Taverbell the Old and dwelt in the house of the Hundred Chimneys and wrote the Golden Book. Um, and the child of the child of the, the Pine of Bilawrin is there. Um, I, I, uh, Arthur, no, Melko's not up in the branches. It's it's the scion of the scion of the tree, uh, up whose branches Melko is, apparently. And I don't know how that translates, uh, you know, how, how that uh, effect is passed down, the genealogical tree of trees. Um, but, uh, and I've never even thought of trees having genealogical trees, come to think of it. But, um, anyway, okay. Uh, so, is Tolkien still doing English mythology in the same way? That is, okay, it's pretty clear how the Ariel story is Tolkien writing a mythology for England. When he comes back and he's like, okay, no, I'm going to do the Alfwina thing. Is he still doing an English a mythology for England then? He said later on that he gave it up, right? Um, that he, you know, he give has he given it up already? Mm, no, 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 I don't think he's given it up at all, right? Um, and, and this is where we, we get the ing stuff coming in. This is Christopher, of course. Here something must be said of the name Ing, Ingwe, Ingwaiwar, uh, in these passages. As with the introduction of Hengist and Horsa, the association of the mythology with ancient English legend is manifest. 
but it would serve no purpose, I believe, to enter into the obscure and speculative scholarship of English and Scandinavian origins. The Roman writers term Inguiones for the Baltic maritime peoples from whom the English came, the name Ingwine, interpretable either as Ingwine, the friends of Ing, or as containing the same Ingwe seen in Inguiones, or the mysterious personage Ing, who appears in the Old English runic poem Inguas Arest, mid aes dainum. Yeswen sejum, offer sithan aest, offer why yawat, Juan after ran. Which may be translated, Ing was first seen by men among the East Danes until he departed eastwards over the waves, his car sped after him. It would serve no purpose, because although the connection of my father's Ing, Ingwe, and the shadowy Ing of northern historical legend is certain, and indeed obvious, he seems to have been intending no more than an association of his mythology with known traditions, though the words of the runic poem were clearly influential. Okay. Um, now, it is not my intention either to go more into this, because you'll have to get somebody who knows a good deal more uh, about Norse and Anglo-Saxon legend than I do to explain this ing business to you. What is clear, however, is that there is this... There are these references which Christopher Tolkien lists. The, 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 the Roman reference, the name Ingwine, the, na- the mysterious ing person who comes up in this poem... Um, there is this. There exists this idea, but notice, notice the reason Christopher doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to talk about it because he doesn't want to enter into the obscure and speculative scholarship of English and Scandinavian origins. That is, we don't really know anything about this ing person, or rather, scholars disagree widely about who this is and what it means and how significant it is. Right now, as of course I'm sure many of you know. This is exactly the kind of thing that Tolkien loves to write about, right? You've got this sort of historical, literary, linguistic mystery, right? Tolkien doesn't have enough data in order to be able to make a, 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 a point, right? He, he can't publish an article on this and say, I believe I have solved the mystery of all the ing business, right? Here is the explanation. He can't do that. But he does have an idea. He does have a theory. Or rather, he has thought of a story. It's an untold story, right? So he, he's, he's filled out this story, right? Um, uh, invented a story which would make sense of all of those Ing references. And it's, of course, the story of Ing and the Ing Waiwar. Um, Ing, the, the king of Luthany, who is friends with the elves and when the elves depart, uh, and in, you know, whose followers and in whose tradition the English have come to, to, to receive the story of the elves. Christopher gives even a few more uh, details about uh, Ing and the close parallels uh, between... Tolkien's, you know, as said in the very last sentence there, uh, when he says, though the words of the runic poem were clearly influential, um, that uh, how he departed eastward over the waves, you may remember in Christopher's description of the story of, of Tolkien's Ing, um, we, get, uh, we get that eastward movement across the sea as he tries to set out west, but is, ends up going east instead. Um, so we see Tolkien incorporating these ideas, or rather providing a sort of fictional, mythic explanation of all of those otherwise unexplained things. Um, 
but uh, okay, um, yeah, Jana, he is putting forth a theory in in fictional form rather than than in a published paper because you have to be really sure of yourself and you have to be able to prove it right to say it in a published scholarly article. But you can write a story about it, right? And this seems to be what Tolkien most liked to do and how he most liked to do it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so. Uh, Yes, Yana says he does similar things with the Rohirrim during the Lord of the Rings. Right? Absolutely, yes. Um, in, in the his depiction of the of the Rohirrim, you can see him putting forth sort of speculative ideas um, based on you know sp- speculative interpretations of particular passages in Anglo-Saxon literature, particular uh, th- speculations about linguistic history, as for instance the relationship between uh, the Anglo-Saxons and the Goths. Um, yeah, 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 that kind of stuff he does all the time, so we shouldn't be shocked to see him doing it here. Um, but more about Ing. Um, uh, and here, uh, Kate, I think you were the one who was talking about Arendel earlier on. Here's where we're going to get back to that. Um, back to one more bit about Tolkien's Ingwe story here. How Ingwe drank Limpe at the hands of the elves and reigned ages in Luthany. So Ingwe is this really important and mysterious figure, not just because he was a great human king, but because he drank Limpe and became a semi-immortal king. How Eärendil came to Luthany to find the elves gone. How Ingwe aided him, but was not suffered to go with him. Eärendil blessed all his progeny as the mightiest sea rovers of the world. Thus explaining not only how Alfwina is eventually going to be able to discover Tol Erisea and write the Book of Lost Tales, but also how England is going to become one of the greatest maritime powers in the world in the 19th century, right? Mythology for England, right? Why, with this expo- so this explains, uh, you know, Admiral Nelson and everything, right? Because Eärendil has blessed the progeny of England. See? Mythology for England. How Asse made war upon Ingwe because of Eärendil, and Ing longing for the elves set sail, and all were wrecked after being driven far east. See, there we go, the eastward movement from that, that runic poem. How Ing the immortal came upon the Dani Orodani Urdainoth East Danes. Again, from that runic poem. How he became the half-divine king of the Ingwaiwar, and taught them many things of elves and gods, so that some true knowledge of the gods and elves lingered in that folk alone. Um, again, the true tradition of the elves coming down through the English, not because of the Book of Lost Tales, but because of Ingwe, or Ing, and his earlier relationship with the elves, that true tradition predates the Book of Lost Tales. And the Book of Lost Tales itself just sort of becomes the fulfillment of them. Notice how he is expanding the idea of the mythology for England. Right? In the, one of the flaws in the earlier version of the mythology for England, though it's kind of a fun one, right, is that it's only through the Book of Lost Tales itself Right, you know that is like if you don't have this book, then England still ha- doesn't have its mythology, right? Um, but uh, uh, but of course, it's also really kind of fun, right? Because it explains why the English have never had their mythology before. Why is there this mythological hole in the history of England, right? 
Well, because the Book of Lost Tales was lost, right? And now it's found, and so hooray. So we're not inventing a new mythology for England. We are discovering the hitherto unknown ancient mythology for England, and that's awesome, right? So that, that that's the old version. That's the aerial version. In the Alfwina version now, it is merely sort of this, the, 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 the last fulfillment, this sort of the fruition of this tradition which is already there, which is already dispersed, which is already kind of detectable uh, in the English tradition. So that's interesting. That's pretty cool. Um, uh, and the fact that he's being actually brought into the Arendel story, right? Arendel himself comes to Luthany and hangs out with... So Ingwe and Arendel are pals, Um Arendel comes back to Luthany and could f- looking for the elves and finds the elves gone. I guess is that why Arendel heads out towards Tall Arisea? Does he ever get there? Is that where he's going? We don't know. We have no idea how the Arendel story was going to be changing in the Alfwina version. But uh, um, but anyway, you know. So again, we we can see how these things are much more deeply rooted in the story of England in the Alfwina version. Um, but. I would disagree if somebody wants to say um, he's no longer doing those same kind of origin myths, you know, like because again, we got like why is England an island, right? Why is it located where it is? Why is there that funny channel between it and France? Why is that? Well, in the old version, we get an, we, we get an explanation for all this, right? Oh, it was it was Tolerisane, it was got dragged over by the whale, and there was an isthmus, and, and then they cut the isthmus, right? So that's why you've got the channel now, um, and uh, it's why the channel is hard to cross, right? And there's really rough seas in there because it was designed that way, right? Because the elves were trying to keep the men out, and for a long time, uh, the channel did prevent, again, according to the aerial story, uh, for a long time it did prevent men from, from crossing over, until finally, you know, but then finally they did, and um, and that's when things basically started to suck. So that's that, that's the old version. Um, now, um, but now it's totally different. So, but, so wait, is it totally different in the sense of we're not doing that kind of explanatory myth anymore? You know, of how England came to be England. England's just already there, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it's not so prominent an element of the story, but I do not believe that he has completely stopped doing it. Um, look at the very first paragraph of the, the Alfwina story, the Alfwina of England story. There was a land called England, and it was an island of the west, and before it was broken in the warfare of the gods, it was westernmost of all the northern lands, and looked upon the great sea that men of old called Garsedge. But that part that was broken was called Ireland, and many names besides, and its dwellers do not come into these tales. That's <laughs> a wonderful understatement. Its dwellers do not come into these tales. Um, remember that the establishment of Ireland, of Ireland, the ripping apart of Ireland from the main body of the rest of the island, was part of the original being hauled back by a whale story. Uh, remember, Ase didn't want them to take it, so Ase goes to one side and he's pulling back, and we get this tug of war on the island of Tall Arisea, and then it, you know, Ase accidentally rips a chunk of it off. Um, uh, it, it, it's uh, so that's the old story. 
Now, the news story is much less full. All we are told is that the island was broken in the warfare of the gods, and that the broken part was called Ireland. Um, yeah, so there's this warfare of the gods. What warfare of the gods? Well, we don't really know. Does this mean there was like a some kind of a tug of war? There's something like that, it seems. In any case, although we're not given the graphic sort of physical image to see Ireland being ripped off, note that we still have Ireland being born in conflict. Possibly, uh, again, if, if, our, if the earlier story is, is still in any way relevant, possibly uh, conflict over possession, right? Who's going to possess this island? And it's ripped apart, and that's where we get, that's where we get Ireland from. Um, the idea that this is sort of a mythic explanation of why, you know, the island chunk that is Ireland is going to have a future destiny dominated by constant conflict over who possesses it, that seems to be inherent in both of these versions of the story of the founding of Ireland. Um, so, I, it, to me, although it's much toned down, you know, we don't get the description of the whale and all that business, I think we can still see a similar kind of element uh, there. He's, I mean, he didn't have to go there with Ireland, right? But we still have a cause being given, a, a, a warfare-related cause given uh, for the separating off of Ireland. Um, Christopher points out in his commentary on this passage, or his note on this passage, um, that you know maybe this is a first hint of the of the idea of the you know the the drowning of Beleriand. Maybe I don't find it honestly very convincing. Um, I mean, if it is a foretaste of that, it's a teensy tiny foretaste of that. It seems to me much more likely to be a remnant, a memory, a retention of that idea from the earlier version than uh, uh, looking forward to that kind of huge concept. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, but let's let's go on and look at more of the more of the Alfwina story because looking at how he's now taking these ideas of this English mythology and this English story and kind of making it, um, you know, putting it within this story that he's writing. So here we get the heritage of England described at the very outset. All that land the elves named Luthien, and do so yet. In Luthien alone, st- now, now again, it was Luthany before and now it's Luthien. Roll with it. Just roll with it, right? In Luthien alone dwelt still the most part of the fading companies, the holy fairies that have not yet sailed away from the world, beyond the horizon of men's knowledge to the lonely island, or even to the hill of Toon upon the bay of Fairy that washes the western shores of the kingdom of the gods. Therefore is Luthien even yet a holy land, and a magic that is not otherwise lingers still in many places of that isle. Okay, so you see the emphasis here, right? Um, it's very different on the one hand from the old conceptions. England is now no longer the island. It's no longer elven home, which the elves have been driven out of or from which the elves have faded. Um, it was only ever a waypoint, right? It was a place that housed the elves while they were still here 
at one stage of their westward journey, their return westward, right? They march over to help people out, they go back, spend some time in Luthany, but then when they start to fade, they then go back further to tell Arisea much further, right? Beyond the horizon of men's knowledge, so not just a step further away, right? A step further out into the suburbs, a very significant shift, right? Out beyond the horizon of men's knowledge, because only there, presumably, are they going to stop fading, right? So, when we live in England, we are not living on elven home that we have taken over. Um, we are only living on the place where elves once also dwelt. Um, and that's a big difference. And yet, we can see a lot of similarity, I think, to old conceptions. That is, nevertheless, despite the fact that we're not living in elven home itself, nevertheless, we're living in a place where elves once were and where some still, some fading still remain. Um, now, when it says, dwelt still the most part of the fading companies, it sounds like, hey, don't most of them still live there? At the time of Alfwina of England, yes, not so much anymore, right? But at that point, yes, we'll, and we'll see some more of that later on. Um, but that last line, therefore is Luthien even yet a holy land, seems to be a sort of glancing forward, right? Not only in Alfwina's time, but even now it is it retains some of its holiness and magic um, that doesn't otherwise uh, ling- uh, th- that is not otherwise. Um, it lingers still. Uh, in many places uh, of that isle. There are a lot of echoes in Alfwina of England, a lot of verbal echoes to some of the poetry that Tolkien had written five years before it, um, like Cortirian Among the Trees, these poems that we get way back um, back in at the end of the Cottage of Lost play chapter um, of Volume 1. Um, if you read Cortirian Among the Trees, the, oh, the first version of Cortirian Among the Trees, you can see a lot of the language that Tolkien uses there being echoed quite directly um, in uh, in in this in his descriptions here of Luthany, or excuse me, Luthien, uh, in uh, um, in Alfwina of England. So, in other words, his fundamental sense of the situation, right? That is. The fact that human beings who live in England still have this are affected by the presence of the elves, by their by the, the, the heritage of magic and holiness, a word used several times here, of the elves, um, that is similar. But the context of that is different, right? Are we invaders who have taken over Elfland? Or are we the fort- you know the remnant of that fortunate race who once uniquely in all of the lands lived in harmony with the elves for a time before they departed right um that context i think is really importantly different uh but the substance is very similar especially uh, v- uh very similarly described um now alfwina's family story now, amid most of that island, is there still a town that is aged among men, but its age among the elves is greater far? And, for this is a book of the lost tales of Elfinessa, it shall be named in their tongue Cortirian, which the gnomes call Minden Guar. 
Upon the hill of Guar dwelt in the days of the English a man, and his name was Dior. Remember, Cortirian uh, and Minden Guar is Warwick, right, in England? That still seems to be true. Okay, anyway, upon the hill of Guar dwelt in the days of the English a man, and his name was Deor. And he came thither from afar, from the south of the island, and from the forests, and from the enchanted west, where, albeit he was of the English folk, he had long time wandered. Now the prince of Guar was in those days a lover of songs and no enemy of the elves, and they lingered yet most of all the isle in those regions about Cortirian, which places they called Alalmenore, the land of elms. And thither came Deor the singer to seek the prince of Guar, and seek the companies of the fading elves, for he was an elf friend. Though Deor was of English blood, it is told that he wedded to wife a maiden from the west, from Leoness, as some have named it since. That's Wales. From Leoness, as some have named it since, or Evadrian, coast of iron, as the elves still say. Deor found her in the lost land beyond Beleriand, whence the elves at times set sail. Um... Actually, no, wait, I'm, I'm wrong. Leoness, it's not Wales. It's Cornwall. What am I thinking? Um, uh, anyway, down from the west. Okay. What do we see here? Notice the context. This is now, this is the context of the frame for Alfwina's life, right? So, at the time of Alfwina, enough of the fading elves are still, they're fading already, right? They've, they've, they've already relocated to, to Tol Erisea. But they still linger, and they still linger in large numbers. And there are still lots of them around Mindenguar, around Cortirian, around Warwick, uh, such that... Um, and we learn that the prince of Guar, the human ruler of Guar, um, is no enemy of the elves. Presumably one of the reasons why they still linger there, right? And so Deor the singer goes there uh, because he's an elf friend. And so he goes, because, you know, there are lots of elves there, so he wants to visit them. Um, so anyway, there's... Um, uh, notice that, that there's this sense of... Yeah, camaraderie would be too light-hearted a word to describe it. Um, but again, the, the sort of the historical context of Alfwina is one of still connection still active connection. It's not just the memories of the Eldar linger here yet, but rather a bunch of elves around. Right? Um, <clears throat> yes, they're fading. Yes, they're departing. But they're still around. And I love the fact that his mom's name is Eod Gifu, uh, which means gift of blessedness. Um, which is like secretly the name of most of the wives uh, in Tolkien, I, I think. Um, you know, the joke I've so often made about husbands in Tolkien almost always marrying up. Yeah, because, you know, so many of the wives are gifts of blessedness that, you know, what's a guy to do? Anyway, uh, we... Uh, so this is a little bit later in Alfwina's story, so Deor and Eadgifu have already died now, um, very much like Ariel. Ariel's personal life history, um, Alfwina has a pretty similar one, right? Tolkien has clearly retained a lot of those elements in Alfwina's story. Um, but notice again the way that it's uh, uh, 
notice the way that it's it's uh, contextualized here. At last, his longing for the sea bit him so sorely that he contrived to break his bonds. He's been a thrall uh, to Orm the Viking, the, the, the Norman, uh, Orm of the Forad Wife, uh, who conquered his town and killed his father. At last his longing for the sea bit him so sorely that he contrived to break his bonds, and daring great perils and suffering many grievous toils, he escaped to the lands where the lords of the Forod Waith had not come, far from the places of Deor's abiding in Minden Guar. Ever he wandered southward into the west, for that way his feet unbidden led him. Now Alfwina had in a certain measure the gift of elfin sight, which was not given to all men in those days of the fading of the elves, and still less is it granted now. And the folk of Luthien were less fated too in those days, so that many a host of their fair companies he saw upon his wandering road. Some there were, some there were dwelt yet and danced yet about that land as of old, but many more there were that wandered slowly and sadly westward, for behind them, for behind them. All the land was full of burnings and of war, and its dwellings ran with tears and with blood, for the little love of men for men. Nor was that the last of the takings of Luthien by men from men, which have been seven, and others mayhap still shall be. Men of the east and of the west and of the south and of the north have coveted that land, and dispossessed those who held it before them, because of its beauty and goodliness, and of the glamour of the fading ages of the elves that lingered still among its trees beyond its high white shores. Another big mythology for England moment, right? Or mythology of England moment. Why is it that people have been fighting over England? Why are there so many invasions of England? Why why do they, you know, why are the Danes coming over and the Vikings coming over? Why is everybody always coming over? Well, because it's beautiful and goodly, which means, like, it's fertile and rich. And <clears throat> and this is the one you don't normally see in the boring history books, um, because of the glamour of the fading ages of the elves that lingered still among its trees, right? Uh, it's because of that sense of the presence of the elves. They might not even understand that that's what it is that draws them there, but it is, right? Um... But notice, as Alfwina is wandering west, he finds, on the one hand, he sees elves still. I was about to say all over the place. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. Um, But he sees many of them, right? He sees many of them wandering on his road. They're still dwelling and dancing around, but many of them are going west. So Alfwina is going... Again, we get the whole, as I said at the beginning, the westward orientation of all of the Alfwina stories, right? As he is headed west... In being drawn by this longing for the sea that is within him, and the elves are also sadly and slowly wandering westward, leaving the land, the human lands behind once and for all. Um, now, there's also here another way in which this is, this has a kind of, um, kind of uh, mythological element, you know, a sort of mythology for England element as well, is that this passage in particular, and, and this whole Alfwina, this whole section of the Alfwina story, um, and his reference to the elves that you just meet wandering around, sounds to me very much like um, 
the medieval fairy tradition in medieval romances. Um, it sounds a lot like poems such as Sir Orfeo, which Tolkien translated. Um, when Sir Orfeo is wandering, you know, he's in a period of wandering around in the woods. He's constantly running into fairies. I mean, not like every day and every minute, but you know, when he wanders out in the woods, he sees the elves coming out to hunt occasionally. They see this coming out to to hawk and to dance. It's just a thing that happens, right? Um, and that kind of thing survives in a bunch of of late. It's a relatively early Middle English poem, but in a bunch of later um, medieval stuff as well. Um, th- Chaucer even makes a joke about it. Um, I'm thinking here of the beginning of The Wife of Bath's tale. When the Wife of Bath is making a joke, and it's the Wife of Bath, so she's making an off-color joke, um, and she's making an insulting off-color joke at the expense of friars. But the point is, the premise of her joke um, is she is telling a story which took place back at the time of King Arthur. Um, and when she introdu- when she starts her story, when she's giving the setting for her story, she's talking about those olden days, and she says that um, that the woods of England at those times were fulfilled of fireia. Um, they're they're full, of, full of fairies. There's fairies all over the place, right? Um, uh, and, uh, and okay, you know, this is where it gets a little off color because the wife of Bath is sort of speculating that like. A girl couldn't walk out anywhere those days without, like, you know, running into a fairy. Um, and that's and then she turns it into a, a joke at the expense of the friars by saying that now uh, the wandering friars going around preaching are going everywhere, and they've driven out the fairies. Uh, the fairies have fled before the friars, uh, and now there's no threat to a woman's uh, uh, chastity but the friars, um, <clears throat> which is where it becomes both off-color and insulting. But again, the point is, even in the context of of the the wife of Bath's dirty jokes, still the premise of it is, back in the olden days, there were lots of fairies around, but the fairies have now gone, right? Um, that idea we can see, you know, so we see that even there in Chaucer and in the wife of Bath, um, who is ultimately telling a fairy story um, <clears throat> about a fairy queen. So... Uh, but 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 again, th- those ideas, we see a lot of that kind of idea in traditional medieval English literature. Uh, so Tolkien is giving, is making connections to that, right? He's sort of providing us a mythological context for those uh, those references for for you know stories like the Wife of Bath's Tale and Sir Orfeo. Um, it's kind of, you know, this the Alphawina of England story becomes, in a sense, like the origin myth of those medieval ideas, which is kind of cool. Um, and I love the idea that Christopher gives in his notes about the idea that this passage in particular is can be served as a kind of a context for Ted Sandyman's comments, right? That, you know, when Sam says that the elves are going and that, you know, they're, they're, they're going, they're sailing, sailing, sailing off into the west and leaving us, uh, Sam with his repetition of sailing, sailing, um, waxes a little poetic there, right? He starts, he falls out of a purely prose conversational mode and starts to get more rhythmic and, and, uh, and, and, and poetic in his speech. And Ted Sandyman says, that's nothing new if you believe the old tales, right? Um, 
The old tales suggest that the elves have been sailing away for a long time. Um, and I love Christopher's suggestion that Alfwina of England here is one of those old tales which underlies Ted Sandyman's comment, right? Yeah, old tales like this one, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I get it's just uh, it's awesome. I, I I I love that idea. But okay, so now we're going through Alfwina's story. So he goes off and he goes on his his wild journeys, right? Um, he's he he sort of roams all around. He gets wrecked, and he meets the old man of the sea, who turns out to be Olmo, though he never seems to figure that. Out. Even the moment when when the old man of the sea like dives down off the cliff, and uh, and you know he's like, oh man, why did he commit suicide? That's so sad. And you know the Uthlingas are all like, oh, what an idiot you are. Um, but anyway, so Alfwin is kind of slow on the uptake about this, but he has all of these. Um, he has all these adventures. Um, now, you know, Yana is thinking about comparing with the Odyssey again. There are some similarities, of course, with the Odyssey. We talked about the Odyssey, especially in relationship to Arendel uh, earlier on. But um, uh, that's kind of a fun... Par- especially when you think, of course, of the Odyssey as... The whole point of the Odyssey was him getting home, right? Um, and so the idea of... Alfwina and his journey to find Tol Arisea being sort of paralleled with uh, Odysseus and his return home is kind of fun. Um, yeah, yeah, Yana, I agree. I, I like that he doesn't figure it out, and y- Yana says, uh, you know, and, and that they won't tell him explicitly. Um, yeah, nor does the, you know, the, 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 the narration, you know, the narrative at all explicitly say it. Uh, yeah, it, it is kind of fun how cagey the story is about that. Um, as if the guy writing the story never actually figures it out, right? The story is the story. The the, the cluelessness of Alfwina himself is handed down, right, in the story, um, and that's kind of fun. But uh, <clears throat> I want to jump in to a, a well. I want I want to f- focus most on the story of. Um, um, uh, on the end of the Alfwina story, which I find really, really striking. Um, one moment I couldn't help but touch on, though, on the way through. Now at the bidding of the man of the sea, those island, uh, do those islanders, with great speed, fashion a new ship for Alfwina and his fellows, since he would fare no further in Orm's ship, and its timbers were cut, as the ancient sailor had asked, from a grove of magic oaks far inland, that grew about a high place of the gods, sacred to Olmo, lord of the sea, and seldom were any of them felled. A ship that is wrought of this wood, said the man of the sea, may be lost, but those that sail in it shall not in that voyage lose their lives, yet may they perhaps be cast where they little think to come. Um... Okay, so uh, the man of the sea has this great idea. Let's cut down the sacred, uh, the the sacred trees of of Olmo and make you a ship, a magic ship, out of that. Um, and again, still, you know, and here's Alfwina like, oh, okay, yeah, uh, thanks, that sounds great. Um, but here, I went as you can tell, I'm I'm sort of tipping my hand in my subtitle here. A ship then new they built for him. Um, anyone recognize the quotation? Who's who's that? Where's that from? 
a ship then knew they built for him. Um, sort of James. James said Errantry. That that's the poem, right? But yeah, it's Bilbo's version of the tale of Arendel. Yeah, uh, a ship then knew they built for him is the sort of the remaking of Wingalot when it's set up into the sky and the Silmaril is bound on him. Um, I find, you know, talked before about the parallels between Alfwina and Eärendil, which I find more and more striking as we go through this story and the story of Eärendil of Alfwina's voyagings. Um, and I couldn't help but notice as I'm reading through these elements just keep jumping out at me, like this one, right? It's a small thing, but okay. So he takes his ship, which is a cool ship. But and it takes it gets him far, but it can't get him all the way, right? Uh, it can't get him all the way to his journey. There's this, there's this. He's got to cross this threshold, right? Um, remember, beyond the horizons of the knowledge of men, he's got to cross this th- this threshold, and his worldly ship can't cut it, right? So a new magic ship has to be given to him. It's not the same as with Arendel and his ship that it gets launched into the sky, but it's. The parallel I find pretty striking, right? Um, and notice also, of course, once once that draws my attention to this, I'm like, well, okay, yeah, and he's got the wandering adventures at sea, yeah, and he's trying to get into the West, just like Arendel was. You know, he has this this uh, this this journey, and he's trying to get to. Uh, uh, to 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 the undying lands, okay, you know, to the unfading lands, all right. So we can see, yeah, gosh, this really is starting to sound parallel to Arendel, isn't it? Um, keep so let's keep going now. We get towards the end of the account. <clears throat> that day had they trysted to be the last ere they turned their vessel homeward, if they might. So we have um, Alfwina and his companions giving up. Save only if some wonder should betide or any sign of hope, for their heart was gone. Behind them lay the magic isles, where three of their number slept upon dim strands in deadly sleep, and their heads were pillowed on white sand, and they were clad in foam, wrapped about in the age-long spells of Eglavine. Fruitless had been all their journey since, for ever the winds had cast them back without sight of the shores of the island of the elves. Then said Alfhea, who held the helm, now, O oh Alfwina, is the trusted time. Let us do as the gods and their winds have long desired. Cease from our heart-weary quest for nothingness, a fable in the void, and get us back if the gods will it, seeking, uh, if the gods will it, seeking the hearths of our home. And Alfwina yielded. So he gives up and turns around. Right? He's going to head back to Middle-earth. Remember that happened to Eärendil too, right? He tried to get to the west and failed, as every other mariner had failed before, to cross and go into the west, right? And so they decide, let's go back and seek the hearths of our home. Um, and there's real despair there from El- from Alfhea, right? Um, let's cease our heart-weary quest for nothingness, a fable in the void. Um... Nancy says that the sleepy guys remind her of the voyage of the Dawn Choder. I hadn't thought of that, but you're absolutely right. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Oh, good, James, absolutely. Uh, James is pointing out in here he's being given a commission by Olmo, too. Absolutely. I meant to mention that, James, and I forgot. Thanks for bringing that up. Absolutely, right? You know, the, the fact that Olmo is clearly sending him off on this journey, you know, that was something that was a major element in the A. Arundel story, um, you know, earlier on, absolutely. Um, so, okay, so he's going to give up um, and um, and turn around and go home, but but you know, Olmo was up to something, right? Um, clearly, it's not truly hopeless. What happens? Behold, at length a gentle breeze sprang up, and it came softly from the west. And even as they would fill their sails therewith for home, one of those shipmen on a sudden said, Nay, but this is a strange air, and full of scented memories. And standing still, they all breathed deep. The mists gave before that gentle wind, and a thin moon they might see riding in its tattered shreds, until behind it soon a thousand cool stars peered forth in the dark. The night flowers are opening in fairy, said Alfwina, and behold, said Bior, the elves are kindling candles in their silver dusk, and all looked whither his long hand pointed over the dark stern. Then none spoke for wonder and amaze, seeing deep in the gloaming of the west a blue shadow, and in the deep blue shadow many glittering lights, and ever more and more of them came twinkling out, until ten thousand points of flickering radiance were splintered far away, as if a dust of the jewels self-luminous that Feanor made were scattered on the lap of the ocean. So as soon as they turned their prow back towards the east, a wind kicks up from the west, as if to send them off home, right? But instead it brings with it this strange air full of scented memories. In fact, it smells like elves, doesn't it? I am more and more convinced that that's what Tolkien was thinking of when Bilbo said that in The Hobbit, it smells like elves. Um, this is what elves smell like. They smell like scented memories. Um, the night flowers are opening in fairy. Uh, anyway, okay, so... this and Notice we have the gems of Feanor, right? Yeah, Arthur, I do think... Um, that we do have a hint or foreshadowing of the Silmaril that went into the sea. Yes, yeah, I think we do. Um, this association with the gems of Feanor is 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 a really interesting one. Remember, there was no, there wasn't really a hint other than the fact that his wife Elwing had and was cursed by the Silmaril and the Nalglyfring. Um, there was, there's been no connection between Eärendil and uh, the Silmarils, but now here, in this very Eärendil parallel voyage, um, we, we, we see this memory of the, the uh, self-luminous jewels of Feanor, which is kind of interesting. Um, okay, so, but it's more than the sense, then the music starts. Then came their music very gently over the waters, and it was laden with unimagined longing that Alfwina and his comrades leant upon their oars and wept softly, each for his heart's half-remembered hurts and memory of fair things long lost, and each for the thirst that is in every child of men for the flawless loveliness they seek and do not find. And one said, 
It is the harps that are thrumming, and the songs they are singing of fair things, and the windows that look upon the sea are full of light. And another said, Their stringed violins complain the ancient woes of the immortal folk of earth, but there is a joy therein. Ah, me, said Alfwina, I hear the horns of the fairies shimmering in magic woods. Such music as I once dimly guessed long years ago beneath the elms of Mindenguar. He is now hearing clearly the horns of the fairy, the only the echoes of which he heard in Alalmanore, in the, uh, beneath the elms of Mindenguar, where the elves still lingered, um, and where memory of them was kept strong. But now he's hearing the real thing firsthand. And in that music they hear, they receive, they weep for half-remember, the heart's half-remembered hurts, for memory of fair things lost, and for the thirst that is in every child of men, for the flawless loveliness they seek and do not find. That element is the... I mean, I, I think if I had to point to, like, one single thing, like the heart of the difference between the Ariel story and the Alphina story, that would be it. The thirst that is in every child of men for the flawless loveliness they seek and do not find. That is the heart of the Alphina story, I would say. Um, you think, again, the relationship between elves and men in the Ariel story was almost all negative, Right? Um, that is, it was almost always, it was almost all bad. It was almost all destructive. Um, the elves are in their, they're in elven home, and they bring it back in a mission of mercy. But then they're just taken over, right? And the elves come in, and, or the elves, the men come in, and they go galumphing all over elven home, and um, and breathing the screwing up the air, right? Think of the sense of elven home here compared to the the breath of the men, which. Uh, when they numerically exceeded the number of the elves, made the elves begin to fade. You remember all that business, right? Um, and we're not given any sense that most of the men there, a couple of them can detect that there's something special about the place, but generally they, um, their own desire, their own longings, um, you know, the men that come to take over Tol Arisea, um, that's not what's emphasized. What's emphasized is the growing gross of men, um, of their increasing blindness and deafness till they become even unaware of the presence of the elves and unbelieving of their existence. That's the emphasis in the Ariel story. In the Alphawina story, the heart of it is that thirst. Every child of man has the thirst for flawless loveliness that they seek but do not find. Right, And that is what Alphawina is following. Again, I, find, I think that's just an encapsulation. Um, Middle-earth, creatures of Middle-earth seeking for fairy. Um, well, let's look at the end of Alfwina's story. And lo, as they spoke thus, musing, the moon hid itself, hid himself, excuse me, and the stars were clouded, and the mists of time veiled the shore, and nothing could they see and not more hear, save the sound of the surf of the seas in the far-off pebbles of the lonely isle, and soon the wind blew even that faint rustle far away. But Alfwina stood forward with wide-open eyes unspeaking, and suddenly with a great cry he sprang forward into the dark sea, and the waters that filled him were warm, and a kindly death, it seemed, enveloped him. 
Um, okay. What do we see in his end? Note the complete loss of self, right? The complete selflessness of this. Alfwina stood forward with wide open eyes, unspeaking, and suddenly he springs forward into the dark sea, right? He casts himself out, not in despair, not even exactly in hope, just, he just embraces this, just immerses himself in it, loses himself. Um, his leaping forward into the water and emerging at Elvenholm, um, it's easy to to see this as you know we can we can see this as as like a metaphor for death we can see it as even it's even kind of baptismal right in his immersion in his reimmersion uh in elven home um it's also arendel like taking upon himself, you know, an undying doom, right, and separating himself from all of his fellow creatures and, you know, from his, even from his fellow mariners on his own ship and going to that place where he, from which he is not going to be allowed to return or at least isn't supposed to return. Um, Kate, yes, it's like Reepicheep at the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I agree. Um, yeah, yeah, um... Yeah, Nancy Fosberg says, Of all the sad things in this book, somehow this snatching away of elvish beauty briefly revealed seems to be the most sad. Um, yeah, I hear that. I hear that, Nancy. Um, notice um, notice something, though? Let's think for a second about the Arendel parallel. All the these uh, parallels with Arendel that I've been mentioning. Most of them are not parallels to the Arendel that we've met, you know, in the last chapter, two weeks ago. They're not to that Arendel. Most of the parallels are to the new Arendel, the later Arendel. The one, you know, who has got the Silmaril on his brow and is 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 uh, going into the West on purpose to seek Toerasea in order to you know, accomplish something. Um, you know, seeking seeking uh, Tyrion. Um, that's interesting, isn't it? it? Notice the lines that kept jumping out to me, the parallels that I kept seeing were not to, again, not to the old Arendel, to the Arendel of Bilbo's poem in Rivendell, in the Fellowship of the Ring. But of course, when we were looking at the Book of Lost Tales, Arendel, one of the main things we were noticing was that that's not the Arendel of the Book of Lost Tales, right? The Arendel of the Book of Lost Tales is still really far from that. He's not on that kind of mission, and if he is, he doesn't succeed in it. Um, he gets to Valinor, but too late. Um, and he doesn't have the Silmaril bound on him. And, you know, so, you know, we have to rehash all that stuff, but we saw all, the, all those things. Um, those elements aren't there in Arendel, but they're there in Elfwina. Right. Um, in other words, I've been saying that he seems to be parallel to Arendel, or sort of based on Arendel. Perhaps it's more accurate to say that Arendel is based on him, right? That it's here in the Alfwina story that we begin to see. So, you know, dare we to say something like, um, 
the old Arendo combined with this new concept that we see him working out in Alfwina. So through through Alfwina, we get the birth of the Arendo that we actually recognize, right? That we actually know later on. Um, uh, I think... Uh, um, I don't know. I, I find that I find that an uninteresting idea. Of course, I don't want to oversimplify things. It's not like we just you know, old Arendel plus Alfwina equals new Arendel. It's not exactly that simple, um, but I still think it's I still think it's pretty interesting. Um, okay, a couple questions here. Um, okay. Um, oh, Don has a, a, a sort of a grammatical question here thinking about the kindly death. Okay, let's see. And the waters that filled him were warm, and a kindly death, it seemed, enveloped him. Uh, Don's question is, does the death seem kindly, or does it seem to envelop him? Um, I believe the latter, Don. And a kindly death, it seemed, enveloped him. It seemed that a kindly death enveloped him, I think. Or he was enveloped by something which seemed like a kindly death. That's also possible. The phrasing of that is I, I, a bit ambiguous. I agree, Don. Um, and I'm not sure that they they don't all work, actually. Um, and also, kindly... I can't resist the temptation um, because it's Tolkien to kindly, to hear in the word kindly the old word, kind, kind, which in, you know, Middle English means nature, uh, kind, uh, is, 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 uh, nature, Latin natura, um, natura is the Latin word, kind is the English word, um, it's where the word kin comes from, um, it seems to be a kindly death, then, in that sense, would mean a natural death? I, again, I don't know. I don't know what to do with it or, or how far to go with it. Um, but, uh... Anyway. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to push it too far. Um, and as, as I mentioned before, it's easy for me to do a this as death, or this as uh, this as death and resurrection, or this as uh, you know, like a kind of baptism, or both. Um, just as the translation of Arendel to the skies also has a kind of a death element to it as well, um, a, a sort of an association um, with death. Anyway, um, Kimber asks, is he actually dead, or does uh, this leave his end open? I think it does leave his end. I think the it seemed does leave it open. Um, I think it's going to turn out that he's not dead. I don't think he's de- he de- has died and resurrected. But it does seem that sort of symbolically he has. I don't know. Um, okay. We should wrap up. Christopher's final thoughts. Although as plots, abandoned and doubtless forgotten, they bear witness to truths of my father's heart and mind that he never abandoned. But these notes were scribbled down in his youth, 
when for him elvish magic lingered yet mightily in the woods and hills of Luthany. In his old age all was gone west over sea, and an end was indeed come for the Eldar of story and of song. Um, this is a really neat observation by Christopher um, that um, I, you know this sort of characterization of early Tolkien as dwelling on how elvish magic lingers mightily in the woods and hills of Luthany, and in his old age the emphasis is you know all was gone west over sea and an end come. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that I think Christopher is wrong here. Um, I do think it's a little absolute, right? Um, I, it, it makes it sound a little bit more extreme, I think, than it necessarily is. Um, uh, I mean, after all, you know, in 1920-ish, when he's writing Alphuina, um, he's already, we already have a lot of the, uh, you know, all, all going west overseas, so it's not like that only comes in when he's 60 or something like that. Um, but definitely the the motions are right. The, that is the the, uh, the directions. That emphasis of wonder at the magic that we find lingering here, you know, in England, um, versus the magic is departing uh, and fading. So that's you know I I, I definitely think that, that that overall trend is uh, uh, is right, and what an interesting question, Kate uh, Neville says that the the last comment really makes me wonder what might be in the letters between uh, Tolkien and Christopher that have not been published. An excellent question, uh, and I agree uh, a very a, a very entry and. Nobody really knows because Christopher has kept a lot of those sealed away. Um, so there's a lot of letters from Tolkien that we have never read. Um, uh, that would be really interesting. But well, who knows? Who knows um, when or if those papers will ever be released? Maybe Christopher will burn them before he dies. I don't know. Anyhow. Thanks for joining me on our trip through the Book of Oz Tales. I hope that this has been a a fun introduction to you know this you know these this early chapter of Tolkien's thought. Um, it is something I find I enjoy doing more and more. Um, there is nothing that gives me a sort of a deeper a kind of this new three dimensional uh, uh, appreciation for Tolkien's stories. Um, you know, as much as I have always loved The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings and have continually reread them and reread them, um, yet I find that going through and looking at the overall trajectory of Tolkien's thought from his earliest days up through, uh, you know, what he was working on in his last years um, really just gives me a, 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 a very different and much richer kind of understanding of uh, of of Tolkien's ideas and and again it just makes things some things pop out so much like that that scene with uh, Ted Sandyman and uh, and Sam Camchi how cool is that thinking of it in in, in the context of this Alphuina stuff that we were uh, uh, that we've been talking about so um, 
thank you so much for joining me. And I look forward to more Mythgard Academy coming up with the Princess Bride. And then we'll have another election after that. So uh, I hope that you will... Um, uh, I hope that you will uh, come and uh, join me for future classes. Uh, and uh, for now, I uh, will thank you and say goodnight. See you in a few weeks for the Princess Bride. Okay, good night now. Bye.